Okay, today is our 14th week on our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. And uh, we are uh, finishing element three, the Ten Commandments today. So this is the Ten Commandments Part F. And uh, we have been looking the last couple of weeks at the concepts of theonomy versus antinomianism. Now, I have just introduced them in an introductory way. That's <laughs> in this. In, um, you need to know that within the schools of antinomianism and theonomy, there are broad differences of opinion over a number of issues that we're not going to tackle. Uh, if you want to study those things further, have at it. Uh, there's all sorts of books and articles on such that you can Google and Amazon and everything else and find. So, um, four, uh, five Sundays ago, we looked at where to find the Ten Commandments, four different ways in Scripture. That's Roman numeral two. Roman numeral three, we looked at Jesus and Paul on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we wanted to emphasize both that Jesus talks about how the law will always still be valid, and he didn't come to abrogate it, but to put it into force. And uh, there's so much popular opinion today that thinks that Paul, or that Jesus, disagreed with the law, and that's what he's going after the Pharisees. He disagreed with their antinomian, legalistic, extra-biblical, wrong interpretations of it. And, uh, and, uh, thought, and because he was the fulfillment of the law, he is the law. He is the law in human flesh, and uh, so forth. So then we looked at uh, the ongoing purpose of the law, especially the fact that it convicts us of sin. We all are blind. That there's a deceitfulness to sin. Almost everyone you talk to, uh, not almost everyone, everyone. There's no. I've never met an exception. There couldn't be exception. It would be against the scriptures, and th I think they're right. Um, Everyone you talk to underestimates the depth of our sin. We all do. Uh, and we need both the law, we need the life of Jesus Christ, we need the power of Holy the Spirit, we need, uh, frankly, uh, a body of Christians living it to help us begin to see the depth of our need for, for a rescuer. Um. Last two Sundays, we began to look at antinomianism versus theonomy. Antinomianism in, in general means anti-law. Theonomy means God's law. And theonomists think the, uh, the Ten Commandments are eternally true and have implications for individuals, churches, societies, families, all of life. Now, we looked at uh, the implications of when you become an antinomianism, when you be believe because we're under... Uh, grace, therefore, where uh, the law has no validity or purpose. When you have that perspective, you will go to one of two extremes. Often, people go to both extremes uh, because people, because we're sinful, we are capable of having many contradictory things going on in our life. I've heard had many a Christian saying, "Well, the reason I don't obey what God's word clearly teaches, and I know God's word clearly teaches, is I don't feel like it, or I I'm not sure I have the right attitude or motivation, or, or you know, people are capable of many contradictions." So, um, the one thing that has a tendency to happen when you're antinomianism, which our churches are are rampant with this, they're they're filled with this today, is you get into extra biblical legalism. And you think that God is concerned about things that he's not concerned about. You know, um, how, what, you know how you wear your hair or, uh, you, know, the, you know, all sorts of extra biblical laws. And depending on the church tradition, they can, ver they can vary greatly. Uh, flipping over, you'll see the opposite end is where most uh, Christians in our country are today where you believe because you're under grace and you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you can be lawless. You can just do whatever you please because it's not about getting delivered from your sin. It's about somehow you've packed, punched some magical ticket to heaven, and uh, therefore you can live like you would hate heaven now and, and that you would hate being in the presence of God. And somehow, magically, in the end, it'll all be okay. 
uh, you know, because we kind of lost with the rise of this philosophy, which came, came apart, came about during the fundamentalist modernist controversy in post-Civil War and pre, pre-World War I years, because that philosophy overtook the so-called Bible-believing church and became the dominant philosophy by the 1920s of 95% of evangelicals, uh, because of that, we, you, you hear this kind of thing all the time. Because uh, one of the ideas that came with that package was a reductionist idea. All the ideas of it reduced the Bible's message. And the reductionist idea was uh, simply that, um, that uh, you know, God came to save you from hell instead of God came to save you from yourself. And the whole point of Jesus being Savior, the reason I'm getting away from trying saying Savior and trying to say Jesus is rescuer and deliverer is because we take certain biblical words and we, we take the content out of them. So I have lots of different ways of explaining to people what we're trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship, one of which is acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. But another one is we're trying to put con in, we're trying to build a lifestyle of covenant community together, whereby we are putting the content back into biblical words. And Jesus, the idea of Savior is not just that you prayed some prayer, but it's the idea that you live a whole life understanding all the time that you are being rescued from enemies too powerful for yourself. And those enemies include, uh, first and foremost, our sin nature, which is a violator and breaker of the laws of God. Sin is lawlessness. And it's the, you know, it's the idea of the sexual revolution or the idea of I can do whatever I please whenever I want to, however I want, with whomever I want, and whatever motives and attitudes I want, for whatever purposes I want, and I have no restraints on that so-called freedom. The Bible looks at that as the ultimate slavery because you soon become a slave of your passions, appetites, fears, addictions, and so forth. That is the ultimate captivity. And uh, of course, the other enemies that we're being rescued from is there is a really a Satan and his kingdom with demons, and you are powerless against them. But Jesus is, they are no match for Jesus. He is fully able to deliver. In fact, the word deliver uh, comes from sozo in the Greek for uh, salvation and, and soteria in the, in the, in the um, noun form in the Greek. And it, and it mean, not, doesn't just mean to be forgiven of sins or punch a ticket to go to heaven. It means to be rescued from all these things, including delivered from all the power of evil, whether that power of evil initiates in the power of sin or in the satanic kingdom or in the third enemy that we can't overcome, the world system. Uh, fallen man organized in societies together to resist the plan of God. So that is called licentiousness or lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, we're on the back page at the top, says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Jude 1, 3, and 4, says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It's not, it didn't wasn't evolving. God did progressively reveal himself, but he, he once and for all delivered it all in Jesus Christ and his apostles. That's not to say that he doesn't still speak and do miracles and so forth, but anything God is truly doing, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Anything God is truly doing will bear witness to the Lordship of Christ and the truth of Scripture. He is the Spirit of truth. And if you are hearing from the Holy Spirit, it will agree with his, what he's once and for all delivered from, to the saints. Then he goes on to sit, talk about certain people creeping in who are designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert. Pervert means to twist away from its intended purposes. The grace of God, they take the idea of the grace of God, and they use it to promote sensuality and licentiousness 
and even deny uh, the, the necessity of living a life under the master, our Lord Jesus, who bought us. Now, Mark Rush, do any quote there? The result of antinomianism has always fluctuated between lawlessness and arbitrary rulemaking. In other words, you, you will, you are born in the image of God and you're a creature of laws. If you do not study and evaluate and, 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 uh, and praise God's laws, you will make up your own. And you will do what the Pharisees did. You will strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And you will weigh down men with burdens too heavy to bear when you're not willing to lift them with a finger yourself. And you won't uphold God's righteousness. You'll uphold your church tradition's righteousness or, or or your personal picky views or whatever. And so you'll, you know, you'll lead someone to Christ and you'll think the most important thing I've got to help them see is their need for a haircut. <laughs> you know, and the, Jesus saves and Jesus shaves. <laughs> and, uh, and you will substitute all sorts of manner of craziness for the word of God. So then we looked at implication two, started on it, where, and I uh, don't know that we developed this this well. That's where we kind of ran out of time last week. So we're, we're doing well this week to get into it in only 11 minutes. But um, the pharisaical externalism versus regeneration. All antinomianism will always le- lead to a performance-based approach to righteousness, where it's by you've got to try harder. You've got to do more. You've got to get your six chapters a day of the word, and you've got to be at every meeting, and you've got to tithe, and you've got to all do all this. And Jesus makes it clear, these are all the things you should do without neglecting the love of God and justice. You have to, you have to every day do what God wants you to do, but you've got to start with a base of the gospel of grace. My even ability to seek God is not based on my being righteous. Because if, you know, the the kingdom of God is modeled after ancient kingdoms, and if you came into the king's presence uninvited, you were risking your life. And the king would either stretch out his scepter to receive you, or he would ignore you. And as he ignored you, as you approached the throne, There were men trained to step in and chop your head off. That's what Esther was risking in the book of Esther when her uncle says that perhaps you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. You need to go to the king and and plead mercy for for the Jews and the people of Israel. She said, okay, if I perish, I perish, because she didn't know what would happen. But she decided she was going to go into the courts of the king uninvited. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was dying on the cross, he invited us, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he cried out, it is finished. All righteousness, all fulfilling of the law, all doing of the law is now done. And all the penalty for guilt and sin and shame has been taken upon me because I shamefully died naked in front of the people, tortured, despised, and rejected of men, rejected by the religious men, rejected by my own disciples who feared and ran, and rejected by the statism, the government salvation plan of the Republicans and the Democrats and such types of people who think you can actually do something by moral laws that you pass from some headquarters. That's what the Romans were about. They were bringing what they called the Pax Romana, the salvation, the peace of Rome, into the world by military might. If you want to experience that, try not paying your taxes. So... um, The Pharisees as do all legalists, uh, as do do all antinomians, they uh, thought 
Righteousness was to avoid the wrong kind of people and avoid the wrong situations. If you were a Pharisee, you wouldn't be able to hang out with pretty much anyone from Grace Christian Fellowship because as far as I, I know you all pretty well, and you're all the wrong kind of people. <laughs> None of you would make very good Pharisees, frankly, and that's why I love you. <laughs> so, you know, Jesus says this, for from within, out of the heart of man, not externally, it's not about your neighborhood or your environment or better schools or or do religious rituals, or having the right accoutrements in the sanctuary. I, I can't wait for us to have uh, enough money to remodel this sanctuary someday and to make it nice. And, you know, we're toying with, uh, at least I'm toying with, you know, we've discussed it a little bit here and there. Hope we'll see what the other guys think as well. But, you know, we're toying with putting the, the, the stations of the cross on the walls or, or, uh, some of the most famous pictures in the history, of course, prints and reproductions of them, uh, uh, but hopefully nicely framed, uh, uh, that depict the life of Christ or and so forth. I, I would love Christian art, but I'm not necessarily going to be any more godly or righteous by uh, having that done right. Finally, we can be holy because our, our art is right. No, finally we can be holy because our heart has been humbled. So, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 describes the situation in the time of the Apostle Paul and the and really pretty much the, the uh, situation in, in a Christianity the last 150 years. And it simply says this, uh, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. Now, if you know anything about pop culture, listen to the words of this list. Men will be lovers of self. Ever heard of the word narcissism? All sorts of books coming out. Uh, superseding Christopher Lash's famous Christian book, who is also a psychologist uh, from the 1970s called The Culture of Narcissism, a fantastic book that everyone should read. Um, but now there's all sorts of psychologists saying uh, he was talking about a culture where, oh, one to four percent of people had narcissistic personality disorders and 10 to 20 percent of people were severe narcissists, uh, not to the point of clinical narcissism. And the whole culture was becoming more narcissistic. Now, almost all studiers of the concept of narcissism from the psychological profession are saying the whole culture has become narcissist, and 10 to 20% have severe clinical narcissism. That's what a selfie is all about. <laughs> Come and worship my image. <laughs> oh, God. I've heard of people who have 3,000 pictures of themselves on their Facebook. I hope to God there aren't even 3,000 people, pictures of me littering up the planet. But, uh, <laughs> wow. Um, lovers of money. I think that pretty much explains America. Boastful. That explains sports. In our day, arrogant revilers. You know, I I uh, wrote a uh, took three hours to write a response to uh, to a nephew of mine yesterday who uh, made some some anti you know some comments and on his Facebook about how those who are against abortion uh, do nothing to help uh, women who want to be. Uh, who are struggling with an unwanted pregnancy and they and so forth. And I, you know, just set the fact straight of the fact that what the Miami Valley Women's Center does is just one of hundreds of such ministries in every major city of this nation. And went on to say, and, and that, you know, his, his comments uh, the comments of his followers were F these people and, and kill these people and F these people and we hate these people. And, and I went on to say, uh, why is it that liberals and conservatives are so nasty and can't even talk civil? Really? 
Why is it if someone disagrees with you, they got to be an F in this and a GD that, and we got to hate them and hope they die? You know, uh, some of my friends post things from Eminem who said, you know, he made a great moral statement in one of his songs saying, if you treat me nicely, I'll treat you nicely. And uh, so I quoted Jesus who says, uh, you know, pray for those who despitefully use you and love your enemies. (laughs) Maybe a little higher moral ground than Eminem, possibly. You know, why do we have to be revilers? Why does the discourse have to be so nasty? Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Think entitled. Ungrateful and entitled go very well together. Unholy. Uh, Just in terms of sexuality, we're not a very holy culture. Unloving, irreconcilable. What do you think divorce is all about? What do you think broken families are all about? It's about people. What do you, why do you think that mortgage contracts have gone up from five or so pages of paper 50 years ago to, to literally over 100 pages of documents to sign so that they can uh, keep you from being able to weasel out of your covenant <laughs> because people are irreconcilable. Malicious gossips. Just want to tell you about sister so-and-so so we can pray for. Oh, oh, that's the Christian version. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless. I used to drive my car in fairly reckless ways. That's why I had 14 wrecks. Uh, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Going to church. Oh, that's the mon- that's the good news translation or something. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. Now, I love speaking in tongues. I love casting out demons. I love prophesying and praying for people to be healed. However, he's not primarily talking about that when he says that they're denying its power. He's talking about denying the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to cause you to confess your sin repent of your way of life, uh, renounce your old way of life, all of which comes out of the fact that he quickens your spirit in the new birth and grants you repentance and faith so that you can have the power of a new creation and you can change your desires to love his presence and to be able to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I, you know, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside and how I long to go with the throng as they go up to the house of God. And I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of God. You know, most Christians miss like 40% of their church's meetings at least. You know, uh, We hold to a form of godliness, but we deny the power of regeneration. And we're, we're what some have called moralizing or moralistic therapeutic deist. Be more righteous. And you hear, you actually hear Christians tell you how they're a pretty good person. And whenever I hear something like that, to me, it strikes me harder than if they had said the F word in my face. Because that is the denial of everything the Bible teaches. When someone tells me I'm a basically good person, I get scandalized. I just go, oh, <laughs> you know, oh my God, you know, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. <laughs> you know, I, it's it's like, what are you are you crazy? Now, this whole uh, externalism, let's look at it in John 9. I wish I could read the whole chapter, but there's a reason why John covers five miracles of Jesus and five discourses of Jesus, and he mostly focuses on material that the synoptic gospels 
uh, have, have omitted because he had read them all when he wrote his. And he says at the end, in, in defense, um, anticipating that people will say, well, why did he have so many different things to say about Jesus than the other three? Uh, because if, he says, if everything Jesus did was written down, not even the world itself would be able to contain the books, right? So obviously when you do news, when you do history, when you do biographies, you have to be selective. And John purposely selects different material from different perspectives to emphasize different points about Jesus. And one of them is that he opened the eyes of people born blind, which is pretty much the only miracle that was not done by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament lawgivers and prophets. Because God reserved that to tell us in a parable form, because he's so sovereign that he writes his message into the actual historical events, he was giving us a clue. Jesus opens the eyes of those who are born blind, which is all of us. And so uh, the Pharisees were all upset that this guy who was born blind and his wonderful parents were called in to testify, and they said, well, that is our son. And we know he was born blind, but how he's now seeing now, we don't know. Because <laughs> they were too chicken to take a stand. That wonderful. Uh, and, you know, uh, they keep questioning him. And after he uh, answers them, well, gee, I don't know if he's a prophet or no, but one thing I know is I was born blind and now I can see and we know that God doesn't listen to ungodly men so this guy must be something pretty good <laughs> and they shut him up by saying this in verse 34 they answered you were born in utter sin uh, another translation says entirely in sin now that's a new American standard is entirely in sins I got the reference backward at the end here entirely in sins uh, and sin is actually something, the ESV is actually better in this case, because sin is something much deeper than sins. Your sins grow out of your sin, and we have a tendency to tell our testimony by, by the fruit of the tree. Oh, I had this sin, and that sins, and those sins, and this sins, and, and we, you know, like, my sins was I was a drunkard, and we, we even have like kind of a top this testimony boastfulness about it, like, my sin was... Uh, I never did anything that bad except for I was self-righteous about it and, and not doing it for God. I was just doing it because I was chicken of getting in trouble, you know? And we think that's like somehow like, wow, what a better choice of sins. Uh, you know, you were, man, you were an Eagle Scout and graduated with honors from high school. And, and uh, before you knew the Lord, you did it for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> somehow we think that's like more righteous and you know and i was really terrible and mean and nasty and so my goodness don't i have a great testimony <laughs> um so they they say you were born entirely in your in sins and um and you would teach us and they cast him out now notice that jesus cast out demons not sinners Religious people cast out sinners. You can't come to this church till you get a haircut or you smell better. Or I've actually had people come to me and complain about how certain people smell and so forth. And I said, good, give them a hug. <laughs> because if they walk with the Lord and stay in community and so forth, eventually God will speak to that issue. But don't you dare speak to it right now till they're further along and they know how much God loves them and how much we love them, even if they do smell bad. And have you checked your breath lately? Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Uh, so they're, they're actually implying that like their uh, excrement doesn't stink, really. They're saying, they're saying we weren't born entirely in sin. They're denying everything this law was given for. 
in the whole message of the scripture. I've been pretty good since my youth. I've always gone to church, never did drugs. And I went to the, I went to the first Baptist Pharisaical school or the second Jerusalem Holiness Pharisaical school or whatever. I've got good credentials. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But because you say you see, your guilt, which is the Greek word hamartia, the word for sin, remains. Should be translated sin, actually. Your sin remains. It's more than just the, the guilt consequences of it. It's your actual sin nature remains because you think you can see. Your only hope is to come to understand just how blind you are. And if you think you just need glasses, you're not far enough along in conviction of sin yet. God was so lucky when you prayed the sinner's prayer to get such a high-quality candidate. Luke 18, 9 through 14 uh, again, I wish I could read the whole thing, but the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. Remember the parable of the Pharisee? And, the, and Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that he was praying to God. Because if you start with a basis of self-righteousness, you have no basis to come into the courts of the king. Your only basis is that he said it's finished and the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. In Old Testament, saints were saved by their trust and faith in the promise of God to do that. And nobody was ever saved by works, nor could anybody ever approach the presence of God. And all the sacrifices were just uh, foreshadowings to say you can't come before God without the one great high uh, sacrifice made by the great high priest from the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the Pharisee actually was praying thus to himself. I wonder how many times we have prayed thus to ourselves. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Wow. When I hear that come out of the heart of people, I just, I, I kind of cry. I get so sad. I, I need a little churching up but that's all I need. You need a major rescue effort. And it's already been provided. I'm not like these other people. They're swindlers, unjust, adulterous, or even like this, but I've gone to church since my youth up. I'm an Eagle Scout, and I never did drugs, and, and I just have self-righteousness and in my heart, and I condemn other people in my heart, and, and, I, and I'm really a nice guy. The Pharisees were very nice guys. because they like the praises of men. When you like the praises of men, you're usually a really nice guy. I'm, I probably should work on liking the praises of men a little bit more. I could use being a nicer guy. No, uh, maybe not. Implication three, lawlessness uh, in society. Now, I uh, again preached too long on point two, and so God help us. Um, Jesus says this, you're the salt of the earth. This is right in the heart of the most important teaching on what it means to be a follower of Christ called the Sermon on the Mount. I've been reading a lot of books and articles about dispensationalism, which is kind of the twin idea of antinomianism lately. And um, the hardcore dispensationalists actually believe that the Sermon on the Mount is for after Jesus returns uh, in the millennium because nobody could do it now. Uh, most most dispensationalists have mo become much more modified since the 1920s and would still affirm we need the Sermon on the Mount now. You are the salt of the earth, but the salt is, if, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, that is a great summary of church history for the last 150 years. The, the abolitionist movement uh, that came about as a, largely as a result of the Second Great Awakening and um, 
as a result of a book by a, a great Presbyterian minister's daughter, who uh, her name was Harriet Beecher Stowe, and she actually lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which heightened everyone's sensitivity to what slavery really was about. Uh, all of that came about because at one time, despite all the hypocrisy of slavery and the fact that weird, uh, misguided, pharisaical Christians were actually using the Bible to justify such a terrible institution and so forth. Nevertheless, overall, at one time, especially in colonial America, this was probably the most godly or Christian culture that's ever existed in the world, which is not a great statement uh, since there was plenty of ungodliness to go around. But uh, what we've had increasingly is the birthing of the most anti-Christian secular society in the history of the world. That's where we're living right now. In the re and uh, you you know uh, you are the light of world of the world, a city. We don't even most Christians don't even believe, believe they're supposed to belong to some manifestation of a city of people. We just go to church on Sunday. We don't actually live a lifestyle together. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp. A lamp is a place where you put, uh, uh, well, a lamp is, is, a, is a light, and you put it on a lampstand, which is in the Bible, Revelation one twenty. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lampstands are churches. Menorahs in the Old Testament are a foreshadowing of the church. And putting lots of lights together in community. And uh, he goes on to say, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father. In other words, serve God together. Make hamburgers for lost people. Teach them to read. Mow their lawns. Uh, and preach the gospel to them. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say, until heaven and earth passes away, uh, not one stroke and so forth. Now, I don't have time to develop that that much, but as simple as this. The concept of dispensationalism and antinomianism grew out of the, the what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy after the Civil War. The modernist, the modernist, who became most of the leaders of the American Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, and all, all the leadership of the Episcopalian Church, the Lutheran Church, um, and, and the main what was called the mainstream Protestant churches. Even some Presbyterian churches brought, uh, broke off and became liberals, and others broke off and became conservative. Even within the Episcopalian Church, there was a body of Episcopalians who saw the direction of mainstream Protestantism, embracing the liberalism and so forth, and broke off and started what was called, what is still called the Reformed Episcopalian Church. And some of you actually were members of such churches. And so forth. Now, as that controversy raged, in, in essence, the, the mainstream Protestants embraced the worldview and the idea of the Sadducees. One was called Higher Criticism, which is, was just started by a, a German theologian named Julius Wellhausen. And it's the idea that the Bible just contains stories and myths. It's not actually historically accurate. So, you know, maybe there wasn't really an Abraham. And, and of course, they actually will go so far as to believe Jesus didn't really raise, rise from the dead. And that's not important even though Paul seems to think it is in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, as in other places. And what's important is that somehow resurrection faith occurred to the disciples. I'm like, are you on drugs? What? Uh, so uh, the response to this became the fundamentalists and the evangelicals, and they uh, mistakenly said we need to interpret the Bible literally. The Bible is not literal. It's historically accurate, and it's inerrant, and it's infallible, but it's full of liter literature, and the Bride of Solomon did not actually have a neck that was like the Tower of Siloam, and her teeth weren't really fuzzy wool like lambs. She would be a pretty ugly girl, I'd say. You wouldn't want to date, the, the, date her if that was literal. 
<laughs> no brother would stand up. I, I gave a wink on Facebook or whatever, some dating website to uh, the girl from Song of Solomon. I'm really excited about her fuzzy teeth. Uh, are you kidding me? Um, so uh, this idea had pretty much uh, it was started by some of the ideas contained in, especially the rapture idea and the pre uh, dispensational premillennials actually started with a cult here in Ohio. It was born in Ohio in the 1830s called the Millerites. And they were not a Christian group. They were a pseudo-Christian cult. But the Bible-believing Christians picked up the idea in the 1870s, and by 1890s, it was, it was growing rapidly. And the idea was endorsed by a guy named J.N. Darby, and you can still get his books, and you can still read his translation of the New Testament and so forth. Now, uh, this began to sweep the so-called Bible-believing world, and then it was further popularized by a guy named C.I. Schofield, who uh, had the Schofield Reference Bible, which is now in its like seventh um, editing and, and republishing, uh, you know, because little by little they correct mistakes there, see that in the logic and so forth that, that people point out. And so... Um, by the 1920s, this had swept the majority of Bible-believing churches, and it led to all sorts of ideas that we will cover in the Kingdom of God series when we get to current concepts that hinder the Kingdom of God, and these dominate the big churches of our land. And they are, in general, uh, could be, if you had to sum them up in one way or another, you would say they are reductionist. They, are, they reduce the message of Christianity to spiritual things instead of all of life, to uh, individual sanctification instead of corporate living, to uh, legalistic righteousness and lawlessness instead of God's law, and to uh, and, uh, low expectations of what God is going to do in a time-space world so that not too much is demanded of us in terms of study and maturity and so forth because God will bail it out from from. from He'll come back from heaven, but until then, the devil's going to do better and better and better, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And, oh, my God, NEM, it's a twister, and that kind of th stuff. And uh, When the Bible is clearly saying that the kingdom of God is going to grow, grow, grow like a mustard seed, it's going to start in this little movement with a rabbi in, in Palestine and 120 followers who he pours out his spirit on at the day of Pentecost, and they become 3,000 followers. And uh, today there are, there are over 2 billion people who would call themselves Christians in the world. And if uh, we grant that half of them are actually Christians or 25% of them, it's the largest religion now in the world, having passed Islam in approximately 2002. And it's growing and growing and growing, and it will fill the whole earth. And the Sadducees and Pharisees tried to stop it by saying, don't speak anymore in this guy's name because you are intending to fill Jerusalem with this man's blood. And they said, whether it's right to obey God or not, you decide, but we intend to fill the whole earth with this man's blood. Jerusalem, nothing. He said, start in Jerusalem and progress to Judea and go to Samaria and then go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there will be a functioning community of Christians living the full life of the Christian faith in every nook and cranny and city and tribe and tongue and nation of this earth before Jesus returns to a triumphal entry because he has disarmed his would-be enemies and he has totally defeated them. And all nations will turn to the light of his rising because he is the only light that can set you free from your worries, fears, addictions, whatever it is that ails you, you need to experience Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to bring you into deeper experience with Jesus. Now, what we've had 
progressively, uh, after this idea became the idea of 95% of Bible-believing Christians in the 1920s, by the 1960s, people really kind of started in the 50s. People were saying, oh, Christianity is irrelevant. It's hypocritical. We don't even believe in creation anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And they began to press out the implications as Psalm 2 said they would. When they throw off the king and his Christ, Psalm 2 is all about, they will say, let us tear his fetters from us and let us do whatever we want, however we want, when we want. It was called the sexual revolution. Drop out, drop acid, drop in, whatever, but, but drop God and live, make yourself God and worship the sociology of man and the psychology of man and the science of man and the reason of man, and do whatever you please. And little by little, it is trashing our culture. Because now, just in the African-American community, seven out of ten babies are born to single moms. Almost no one is growing up in a home with good parents. Frankly, churches do very little to disciple the parents in how to raise kids. The debt, the debt uh, structure among most Christians is the same as it is among the world. Most Christians have 8,000 or more in credit card debts. The divorce rate is high. However, there's different theories on that. If In, in general, people believe that if uh, if you only interview the, the real Christians who really read their Bibles and who really go to church and, and who really seek God and so forth, the, the divorce rate becomes quite low. But if you interview everyone who says they're a Christian in this total religious confused society, the divorce rate is higher than the, than the cultures, which is a point the aggressive atheists make on their websites. If your Christianity was so, so good, why is your divorce rate higher than ours? Estimates are that 45 to 70% of kids growing up in Christian homes are growing up to reject the faith. And if you think you're going to lollygag into overcoming that, I think again. So, you know, we, we are in a moral free fall. And I love to study the rise and decline of civilizations. If you really want to get into that, there's a series that's only about that wide by a guy named Edward Gibbon called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he was an anti-Christian thinker writing against the ideas of Augustine, City of God, which uh, is only 1,200 pages, so <laughs> what a bargain. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you could read it in a mere year or two, probably. Um, so uh, we're living in one of the fast, fastest collapses of civilization in the history of man. Simple as that. It's all around us. It's everyone we meet. Um, I was talking to my good friend Lou Callagher yesterday quite a bit. Uh, I seek him for advice on a number of ways of thinking and so forth. And he was on vacation in Maine and had to go actually go up on a on a hill to uh, to get his cell signal out to return my call. And uh, you know, I just said, you know, it seems like everybody God brings us is really broken. And at first, I thought that was because we were kind of specializing in that. But it's not because we're specializing in that. It's because everything is broken and everyone is broken. And there's nobody who's not deeply troubled. And if you want to just pray a sinner's prayer and go to heaven, in heaven I pity the fool. Jesus wants to, he's your creator. And he wants to give you a whole new life. He wants to heal your hurts, heal your diseases, deliver you from all sins and bondages. He wants to make your mind right again. He wants to give you maturity uh, from how the Bible sees maturity. He came to set the captives free, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he wants to give you a life that looks very much from the inside out like the ultimate man who's ever walked on this planet, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, so that you can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You 
can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. We have this doctrine of pointing today, which uh, don't you hate when you go to Meyer or Walmart or one of these stores and you say, so, you know, especially how big they're building them now, <laughs> you know, they're bigger and bigger and bigger. You go to Walmart and he goes, oh, it's back over there and somewhere between aisle 27 and 48. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, great. Housewares. <laughs> All I wanted was toothpaste. <laughs> you know, uh, don't you love when they go, come with me, <laughs> Right. Now, what God is calling us to as Christians, the reason I hammer you that I want you to read at least one or two books on all three of the major theories of Christian counseling, I want everyone to know how to cast out demons. I want everyone to know how to counsel. Uh, I want everyone to know the difference between neuthetic counseling and evangelical counseling and, and, and use insights from both schools of Christian thinking. Uh, the reason I want that for us is because no one else is coming. Just like in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, only 3% or less of the Jews understood what they were doing and went with them. And God has, has reasons he sovereignly ordained that. God is not going to have every Christian see what we're doing. There will be lots of Christians in our midst that don't get it and don't want to get it and for lots of reasons. And I'm okay with that because I know what we're doing. And Jesus wants you to become a person who can say, uh, follow me and I'll take you to the leader. Live the way my wife and I live. Do your taxes the way we do your, our taxes. Have the work ethic that we have. Have the values of education that we have. If Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you who spoke the word of Christ to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith, which biblically means their lifestyle. Amen.